As Rod mentioned, we are continuing the amazing last week of Jesus in Jerusalem. The religious leaders are really threatened and struggling with Jesus' popularity, struggling with the authority that he seems to have. And so they've tried to get at him with all sorts of what they thought were really clever questions. And Jesus has just shut them down. So tonight they've got a different strategy. They're going to get someone else to try and do their work for them. And we're going to read how this works out in the account from Luke chapter 20, from verses 20 to 40. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Then some of those Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Good evening, everyone. 
It's great to be here with you. If you haven't met me yet, my name's Ken. I'm also one of the pastors here. I haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, being in ISO with my family. Uh, so it's very nice to be out of that and back here with no masks and singing and all the good things that we're doing. As has been said, we're working through this series. If you haven't got one of these handbooks, they are out in the foyer and you can grab one afterwards. Um, we've actually been working through Luke's gospel now for about five years and um, We've been working through it verse by verse. It hasn't taken us five years. We've been doing stuff in term two, three, and four that's different to Luke. Uh, but it's nice to be here. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's made a claim by riding in on a colt that he's the king of Israel. And now we're seeing the reactions to that. What, is, what do you mean, Jesus, that you're the king? And people are pushing back on that. And so this passage that we've just had read is taking us through what does that look like? Uh, it's a familiar passage, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And so when it's familiar, that means that we're even more dependent on God to actually understand what it's saying and to live it out. So I invite you to join with me in asking God for him to work in and through us. Let's do that. Dear God, we thank you so much for Luke's gospel uh, that you had written down for us, this account of who Jesus is and people's reactions to the claims that he makes. Thank you that we get to see how great Jesus is. And as we think about that and think about what it looks like to actually uh, treat him the way that he deserves, do the work in us to change us, to make us what we should be like, enable us to actually live for King Jesus uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. A question for you. Do you believe that God can do anything? Yes? I certainly hope so. Yes, yes, can we believe? Um, the Bible teaches it in a variety of passages, leading theologians to call it God's omnipotence, his unlimited control over all things. So question, can the all-powerful God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? It's a question that's been around for a long time, designed to trap Christians, showing their supposedly flawed logic. If God cannot make the impossible to lift stone, well, there's at least one thing he can't do. If he can't lift the impossible to lift stone, well, there's something that he can't do. The person answering this question simply cannot win. We're painted into a corner. But I would argue that the problem is not a deficiency with God. He cannot make something simultaneously 100% green and 100% pink at the same time either. It's the requirement that is actually illogical. And I think in the passage that we've just read, a similar game is being played. But rather than simply twisting words to make someone look silly or to, to win an argument, in our passage, a sinister plot is being launched against Jesus. And so tonight we're going to reflect on how does Jesus silence his critics? How does Jesus silence his critics? In the first instance, Jesus silences the teachers of the law and the chief priests in verses 19 to 26. Secondly, Jesus silences the Sadducees in verses 27 to 40. And then finally, we'll think about, well, how does Jesus silence his critics today? So how does Jesus silence his critics? 
One of the real advantages of looking at Luke's gospel verse by verse is that it is much easier to pick up the connections that Luke intentionally wants us to see. What's potentially masked by your Bible and by mine is that verse 20 is not the start of a new idea or a new event, as the heading or the new paragraph might lead us to think. Ever since Jesus rode that cult into Jerusalem, the issue of his authority has been centre stage and it it remains centre stage in this passage. Jesus has claimed to be the King of Israel. He's claimed as the King to have the right to say what does and doesn't take place within the temple. He's claimed as the King to speak as the Son of God, a Son who will be rejected and killed because he's insisting that his father be honoured. And from the moment that he makes these claims, they are hotly disputed. Verse 19 says that the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. See, if Jesus is the king as he claims to be, then their power is a sham. They've stolen it from the rightful king. They claim as the religious, political leaders of Israel that their authority was given to them by God. But the final words of verse 19 emphasise that in practice, these power brokers are controlled by public opinion. They say whatever needs to be said to stay in power. And so unsurprisingly, it is not beneath them to try to trick Jesus. The they, of verse 20, is this offended group of leaders who send spies pretending to be honest or, even better, pretending to be righteous. Now, when you hear the term spies, don't think James Bond or Ethan Hunt. These spies are people who just fit in unnoticed among the crowd. They appear no different from those who are asking difficult, real questions. But when they ask their question, they're asking a question with a specific agenda. They take a known political grenade and toss it to Jesus. Deal with that, Jesus. If Jesus answers that it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, then clearly he is just a puppet of the earthly rulers. He speaks big. But in the end, he isn't brave enough to stand up to Rome. So he can't be a king that's worth following. To follow Rome, to submit to Rome, was to reject God, to not be willing to serve him. Now, if on the other hand, he says that God alone deserves our finances, stop sending your money off to Rome, then he's caught red-handed and they can safely hand over this big-talking wannabe king to Rome and Rome will deal with his sedition. The teachers of the law and the chief priests, no doubt, were rubbing their hands together in glee, assuming that there was no way possible for Jesus to get out of this. They had finally painted him into a corner. And yet Jesus doesn't even break stride. Though the spies sugarcoat their words, Jesus sees straight through them. Verse 23, he knows that this is a trap and he immediately comes up with the most brilliant response possible. Show me a denarius was the coin that they used to pay the imperial tax, whose portrait and inscription are on it. 
typical Jesus, answer a question with a question, to which the spies immediately answer, well, it's Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And silence falls, which I think is supposed to be pretty surprising. Rather than a a comeback from the spies or applause from the listening crowd, there is only silence, just brought about by their shock, their amazement at what's just taken place. Attempting to spring a trap, Jesus' opponents get caught in the trap. Thinking Jesus is going to look like a fool, the tables are turned. Now, the point of this story is not that, well, we wish we were able to come up with such a brilliant retort in the heat of a debate. Rather, it's important to recognise that there are much bigger issues in play than simply looking smart or winning arguments. And again, it is tied to this issue of authority. Before Israel had a human king, they already had a king in God himself, When they chose a human king like the nations around them, they muddied the waters about who is boss. Is it is it God or is it the king? And so Babylon, Persia, Greece and then Rome were in one sense just added noise that further complicated the question of who's the boss. And yet Jesus is able to cut through all the accumulated mess and confusion and different opinions the religious leaders who've been walking this political knife edge for centuries are humiliated. They've simplistically pitted God versus man as if that is the whole issue. But Jesus shows a much more nuanced view of authority that makes sense not just to its original audience, but to us too. The answer to the question, who is the boss, is that God is. No questions asked. God is boss. And holding on to that truth as unchanging, Jesus also demands that at the same time, earthly powers should receive the appropriate respect and honour and obedience and even taxes. See, more often than not, human leaders are the means through which God's authority is mediated to us. And so those who are in Jesus' kingdom will bow their knee to Jesus and also submit to the authorities who are under him. We are not to view paying taxes to the government as rebelling against God. They have been given their authority by God, and so we should gladly pay our taxes. Now, if those authorities demand that we do something that contradicts God's ways, well then, we are bound to disobey them. Earthly claims are not absolute. They are always, at best, second in line. But clearly what this does mean is that for most of the time, we do not have to choose between God and man, between church and state, between science and religion. As people who bowed their knee to both King David and to King Yahweh, so we must continue to do likewise to King Jesus and a flawed human government. To King Jesus and our parents, to King Jesus and your teacher, your university lecturer, your boss, government and health officials, church leaders, the police, they have all been given their authority by God and are ultimately answerable to God. 
It is so simple, but at the same time, it is so profound. And so getting the balance right is not easy. When a government tells God's people to not meet in person, is that something that we should rebel against or something that we happily submit to? It's a question we've all been dealing with. When a parent wants to encourage their child's budding sporting career and yet it prevents them from getting to church weekly, what determines how you dress on Sunday morning? When the world experts say that you need to express that feeling and Jesus says, no, that's sin, well, what do you do? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It's a simple statement, but it's anything but simple to do. And yet with this statement, Jesus has won the battle. His opponents are silenced. But clearly that doesn't mean that he's won the war because as verse 27 shows, Jesus immediately has more opponents lining up to have their go at him. Our point two, Jesus silences the Sadducees. In Jesus' day, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees ruled the roost. They were the two main political religious parties. You were religious and political at the same time. The Sadducees were the wealthy ones, the aristocracy. Most frequently from their group came the high priest. Now, they differed from other religious leaders, as verse 27 tells us, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Acts chapter 23, verse 8, also tells us that they didn't believe in angels or spirits. We know from history that they actually only accepted the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, what they called Torah, which leads some people to comment that they are sad, you see. They've removed so much of the good stuff from the Bible. You would be sad, wouldn't you? Now, now to their credit, these sad guys, rather than sneakily confronting Jesus with a political riddle, as the teachers of the law had done, they are genuinely religious people. And so they asked Jesus a prickly Bible question. Now, in theory, the tragic family events that they described could actually have happened. And in a culture that claimed to follow what Moses had passed down to them, There were rules that the Sadducees rightly pointed out needed to be implemented to deal with this situation. Deuteronomy 25 gives the principle that a brother must marry his deceased brother's wife. And yet neither Deuteronomy 25 nor any of the other passages that refer to this subject give enough detail to answer the specific questions that the Sadducees asked Jesus. And the Sadducees already know that this is going to be the case. These, in the end, are not earnest religious teachers seeking clarity on what God has said in his word, what he's revealed to his people. These are politicians looking for a soundbite with which they can dismiss their opponent. They're not asking for clarification so they can know how to live. They are trying to catch Jesus out. Verse 27 has made clear that they don't believe in the resurrection, which can only mean that their question in verse 33 is a ploy. If Jesus can be caught on the record with a statement that reveals that he is wrong about scripture, then surely he cannot be God's king. Anyone who holds to the Sadducees' theological position will reject Jesus as someone who's not worth listening to. 
And so again, they think that they've got Jesus painted into a corner. But like the teachers of the law and the chief priests before them, they have grossly underestimated King Jesus. He is not some naive, self-appointed king who needs a theology lesson. He takes their supposedly difficult question in his stride, verses 35 and 36. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now, it's really interesting because Jesus is provoking them, the very thing, resurrection, that they don't believe in. He mentions twice. He knows that they don't believe in angels and he compares these resurrected people to angels. He's stirring the pot. But even more fascinating than that, there's two things. The first is that Jesus has knowledge that God alone could have. Verses 35 and 36 are not logical deductions from what was in the scripture at the time. Jesus is revealing what were previously unknown facts about how things will be. He intentionally uses the term resurrection twice, the very concept that they deny, showing that their denial of life after death is a terrible mistake. He exerts his authority, showing how life will be post-resurrection. Marriage now is, or at least can be, a beautiful relationship. But after the resurrection, well, people won't get married or be given in marriage. And you can hear them saying, what do you mean? Hang on a second, Jesus. Like, Can you give us a few more details here of what that looks like? Will all marriages be annulled? How do you know this anyway? going far beyond what Moses could do as a prophet, passing on God's word to his people. When Jesus speaks, it is the word of God. He can say with absolute certainty, with total authority, what is going to happen in the future, even on issues on which the scripture is silent. He is demonstrating that he is speaking as God. It's an extraordinary claim, and you'd think he'd spend a little bit more time there, but things move on very quickly. It's as if Jesus has not just dropped a bombshell of his own. Instead, he moves on to reflect on a part of Scripture that they already accepted as God's word to them. Verses that the Sadducees would have memorized as little kids are quoted back to them, showing that what has been written there, what they've known since they were little kids, proves that the resurrection is true. Recorded in Exodus 3, when when God spoke to Moses on the mountain, sending Moses back to Egypt, he referred there to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the present tense rather than in the past tense, which Jesus says proves that these three patriarchs are currently alive. It's another extraordinary claim that nobody would have made before Jesus that the tense of the words matter and prove that three men who are clearly dead are no longer dead but have risen. Now, it leads some of the teachers of the law to say, oh, well done, teacher, presumably thankful for another theological argument that they can now use against their opponents, the Sadducees. But again, Luke is much more interested in the fact that it silences Jesus' critics. Not only the Sadducees, but no one. Verse 40, 
dared to ask him any more questions. It's become very clear that Jesus is in a league of his own. If you ask him questions, trying to catch him out, it is going to backfire every single time. Whether you challenge him on politics or religion, your fate will be the same. Jesus not only knows the words of scripture, he knows the intent that underlies them and their application to any situation you can come up with for today. And by doing so, he shows that he is the only king worth following. King Solomon, very, very famous king from the Old Testament, David's son, was recognised as greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. But King Jesus goes far beyond what Solomon ever displayed. Here is a king who not only acts with wisdom, who speaks with wisdom, Jesus is wisdom incarnate. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. If Jesus is wisdom, then wisdom says that we should choose to be on King Jesus' side. Here we have great King David's greatest son, the king to which every human king had been a signpost pointing forwards to Jesus. But Jesus' silencing of these two opponents is, isn't just a great story from history. It's not something to show, oh, wow, isn't Jesus really clever? I think that it leaves our society confronted with a dilemma of our own because King Jesus had made claims that we still need to deal with today. And I think that leaves us with a, a couple of modern-day critics that Jesus silences, our point three. If Jesus is king, then that clearly means that we are not. And so if you are listening right now and you haven't yet submitted to Jesus as your king, then I'm sorry to tell you, but you are in active rebellion. Now, you might not think of that. You probably don't think of that as rebellion. But this passage only leaves us two possibilities. Either Jesus is king and we bow the knee to him, or else we are claiming our own right to rule our lives. Now, you may not cynically ask, can the all-powerful God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Quite possibly, you express your disagreement or doubt as polite words. Perhaps you question whether Jesus' teaching on politics and religion still hold up all of these centuries later. You may not agree with his statements on sex or how we should think about money, how we should treat our enemies. But anything less than total surrender is to be Jesus' critic to be in rebellion against the king. Jesus is not a politician looking for your approval, changing and adjusting his demands to ensure that he gets your vote. He's king and he demands our submission. The responses that Jesus gives in these interactions show that he is a king worthy of giving your life to. He undermines every argument that can be marshaled against him. And so if nothing else, then recognise that if we are going to question Jesus, then please be careful to do so with the right attitude. Let's not make 
or mistake, disagreements on refugees or wealth, on leadership or the expression of love as if it was just polite alternate opinions. If you think that there is another way to God, an alternative to Jesus' death and resurrection in your place, then your belief is rebellion against the one who has declared himself to be king. Not one king amongst many kings, the king, exclusive, unique, the one and only. Now, King Jesus does welcome genuine questions, but only debate him if you dare and be prepared to have your clever arguments demolished. King Jesus may look like an easy target, but don't underestimate him and don't presume on his patience. There's a time coming, as we saw last week, when he will say, enough. Now, the other modern-day critic is probably even more subtle and, dare I say, tends to have much larger numbers at church. Because while we say and we sing that Jesus is Lord, is he really? I think that in real life, a lot of our actions as Christians are the deeds of sneaky usurpers. In Shakespeare's famous play, Richard III, the evil plotting of someone intent on taking the throne are on display. To usurp is to take the throne that rightly belongs to someone else. Richard is a villain who grows increasingly grotesque to the audience as he commits worse and worse acts in order to get his hands on the throne. And yet I think scarily we can emulate him. Though we claim Jesus is on the throne of our life, Too often we question our king's decisions or we choose to go away that's the opposite of what the king has stated. Anytime we do that, it is a denial of the conclusions that we should be drawing from this passage. Jesus knows all things. He does direct us in the best paths. And so while we can anticipate what might happen in the future, King Jesus has shown that he knows what is going to happen in the future. So why would we entrust our future to our own educated guesses when someone who knows with certainty is willing to tell us, willing to give us instructions that are a sure thing? My experience has been that we more easily trust in our own ways because the ways I suggest to God seem so much better to me. The paths that I recommend are so much smoother and they end up getting me more quickly to where I want to go. And so even as a follower of Jesus, I can sneak back up onto the throne or at least offer to act as an advisor to Jesus as he clearly needs it. And while we often justify that as reasonable, we've got to recognise that it's actually usurping the throne. Now, thankfully, Jesus knows that his power is never under threat from such weak, misguided attempts to rule from ones who should be in practice submitting to the ruler. My guess is that Jesus gently laughs as any parent being instructed by their preschool-aged child on which home loan to choose or which medical treatment to undertake would laugh. Sorry, my loved one, this one's just out of your league. Glad you're concerned where we're heading, but you're going to have to trust me on this one. While the path that King Jesus sends us on may not be the one that we would choose, he does know exactly what he's doing. So unless we want to be sneaky usurpers, then we need to learn 
to joyfully submit to King Jesus. Reflecting again on King Solomon, there's a, a fascinating, fascinating account of when the Queen of Sheba came for a visit. At the end of her visit, she declares, how happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Now, we could cynically write them off as words of someone who didn't need to stay in Jerusalem and joyfully submit to Solomon. But even in the very imperfect King Solomon, there is a pattern that we should notice. When God's king leads well, it's a joy to submit. When the king is not self-serving, when he provides justice, when he looks after the powerless and facilitate God's people worshipping God, then it is in our best interest to serve the king. It's like, oh, if I have to. Rather than the average Australian's experience of criticising those who are in power over us, who, who make terrible decisions in comparison to the decisions I could make, instead we can praise the one who always makes better decisions than we ever could. And in Jesus we have clearly a king that makes the perfect decisions every time. Not only is he all-powerful, he's also all-knowing and all-good. As one with unlimited power, he chooses to use that power to serve his created ones, washing his disciples' feet. As the king with perfect knowledge, he knows that he's going to be killed and therefore he keeps going on up to Jerusalem knowing that it will win our freedom. He's a king with unlimited love who loves his enemies by dying in their place when they're still his enemies. If we are willing to admit it, we have all been painted into a corner. The undeniable fact that Jesus is king. Only this is not some play on logic in a misguided attempt to try and manipulate us. It is a demonstration that is designed to leave us awestruck by Jesus. How good is our King? Oh, that we would always keep this vision of Jesus before us and stop substituting some lesser King who does not compare. Let's pray. King Jesus, we want to fall on our knees in worship to the great King that you are. We are so thankful to have been able to see because Luke wrote it down for us, this incredible interaction that shows your understanding, your knowledge of all things, your ability to see through people's acts of deception, their attempts to try and trick you and catch you out. And we recognise in this, this is not just luck, good opportunity that you managed to get right this time. This is clearly you in control. And so we're sorry for the times where we have retained authority, where we've said you're king but then chose to run life our own way. I pray that you would enable us to really begin to comprehend how great a king you are and therefore live joyfully in submission to the one who rules over us. We pray this in your great name. Amen.